So Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Colossians chapter 1. I have no idea why I said Ephesians. Yeah, well, you know. It could be nothing more than the fact that I'm getting old. But I'm sure that's got nothing to do with that. Well. Yeah, which makes me really old. But anyway. All right, so uh, once again, verse 18. Again, he's speaking of Christ, uh, as we mentioned, and he is, uh, as we have been looking at the different words and phrases, uh, we've been trying to emphasize what we believe Paul is emphasizing, which is, again, the uniqueness, the greatness, the vastness, the preeminence of Christ, uh, that, again, he is in every way. He is God. He is divine. He should be worshipped. Uh, all things are under him. He is sovereign. Uh, he is king. We could go on with a long list of adjectives, but he really is those things. Keep in mind uh, this thought, and that is when it comes to religion in the world, in all your religions, man is seeking God. And he's seeking to understand God. What they end up doing is just seeking a God after their own imaginations. What God tells us is that, number one, no one is seeking him, the one true God, and God reveals himself to us. It's not what we discover about God, it's what God has revealed. What we discover uh, is really God revealing himself to us. If God had not taken the step to reveal himself to us, we would not know him. We would know nothing about him. Uh, everything really is focused and centered on, on God. He's revealed himself in many different ways, primarily, not only through nature, uh, but through the word of God and through his son, Jesus Christ. Um, and so we want to make sure that as we read through these things, God is, and Paul here is describing to us God and what God is like and what his place should be um, in the world and what his place should be in us. So I want to read you a quote from Barclay. Uh, you know, if you have a commentary with Barclay, you can read it. I, I don't necessarily recommend him because uh, there are some issues with him. But nonetheless, there's a few good things that he says. And he says this, Jesus Christ is the guiding spirit of the church. It is at his bidding that the church must live and move. Without him, the church cannot think the truth, cannot act correctly, and cannot decide its direction. There are two things combined here. There's the idea of privilege. It is the privilege of the church to be the instrument through which Christ works. There is the idea of warning. If a man neglects or abuses his body, he can make it unfit to be the servant of the great purposes of his mind. So by undisciplined and careless living, the church can unfit herself to be the instrument of Christ who is her head. Now when we speak of the church, try to always think of the church, I guess, in two ways. Number one, the church, again, is God's people as a whole. And it is through us, really collectively that God reveals himself to the world. We have responsibilities individually, but as we live and act and move, even as individuals, we are the church. We're not the totality of the church, but we, we are, it's, it's not like we're separate from the church. Now the reason why I say it that way is because in our country, and maybe it's in Western countries, Western civilized countries, there tends to be this idea floating around times that and individuals would declare it. I can be a Christian. I don't need the church. Well, remember, number one, it doesn't really matter if you think you need the church or not. That's immaterial. 
What has God said? He desires us to be a part of the church. We are a part of the church. We are a part of the body of Christ. Uh, he has designed the church uh, to have an impact on the world. It is about us collectively. Uh, there was no one individual, um, even though there are like, for example, individuals that we may really admire that we see that God has used in tremendous ways. At the same time, there is no one individual who is indispensable. There is no one person if they die, then there's no church. That's just not going to happen. There will always be someone else. In fact, uh, for a while back in the uh, late 70s and the 80s in the Philippines, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm, this, this may still be going on now, but I'm, I was very familiar with it back then because I grew up in Hawaii. A lot of my friends were Filipino, and uh, their parents would tell us stories how there were a lot of communist guerrillas uh, who would, on Sundays, uh, sometimes just get this thing where they would start persecuting the church. So, so they would go into to a lot of these small churches, and they would wait till the service started so they could figure out who the pastor was. And, then when, and so then when he started preaching, they would go in the middle of the service, grab the pastor, drag him basically out into the yard and of course everybody's screaming and yelling and they're all going out and they would execute him uh and then they would come back the next week and there'd be somebody else preaching the church would gather together and they'd grab that guy and they'd drag him out the church in the yard and they'd execute him the next week there'd be someone else they're preaching it just it just didn't end you know the, whoever is the next one they just step up and they study the word of god and they they they, they could never quite get a handle on that and they basically got tired. They got tired of doing it. Um, and the idea behind that is that the church, again, is always more than just one individual. Each individual is important, but at the same time, uh, no one is indispensable. The church will go on. Uh, that's why sometimes, maybe often, it's a sad note when a local church of any type, if the senior pastor dies and the church completely falls apart, that means it wasn't quite christ-centered enough like it should have been it doesn't mean that the pastor was bad maybe maybe he was trying to get that way who you I mean this is how it is and i think a lot of that has to do with just our culture uh but that really shouldn't happen there's always the ups and downs of church life and there's the ups and downs based on individuals who are called to be pastors and there are sometimes pastors who shouldn't be pastors and there's all that stuff going on but basically the church is going to continue um and uh um especially worldwide. And so we just need to remember that so that when he speaks of the church, you know, this is not some other separate entity. It's always us. There's the universal church, which is all believers, and that universal church is made up of all these local churches. We're all really the function the same. Even though we will be different in the sense that every human being is different, we have different personalities, at the same time, every church is to be the same. You know, we, how we worship God, how we study the Bible, how we love each other, how we seek the lost, you know, all of that. How we want to be really centered on Christ and the gospel. Uh, there's not a new way, there's not supposed to be a new way to do church. You know, you may have, one church may have one kind of music and church another, but there's really no difference because they're all, they, what they should all be doing is singing about who? Christ, about the gospel, about God. I mean, it's just how that it is uh, and the way that it's supposed to be. And you'll find that if you go to another country, <clears throat> you find that church is pretty much the same. It's just, it's not different. You go in, and they sing songs about God, and they pray, and they open the Bible, and they teach from the Bible. Uh, I mean, it's just, that's how it goes, and that's what God wants. Uh, and as we learn from the scripture, what the world thinks is the foolishness of preaching. Like, how in the world can that be the main avenue that this organization continues? And yet it is.
uh, and it's just a great thing, which I think uh, clearly shows again that it's of God. The word church itself uh, is, the Greek word is ecclesia. Uh, it is literally the called out ones. So believers are those who've been called out of the world to Christ. That's what we are. Um, the Greeks use the word ecclesia to describe the assembly of citizens that are called out to transact city business. So that's the word that the Bible uses to speak of the body of Christ. So the church is a supernatural living organism. It is composed of living members that are joined together under the headship of Christ through which he works and carries out his purposes for the glory of the Father. So again, the church is central to the plan of God. Uh, we are the ones who are to be the guardians of the gospel. We are to be the ones, and when we say guard it, that doesn't mean to keep it from people, but we guard its truthfulness. We, we, wanna, we make sure that we know what the gospel is. We guard the doctrines of scripture. Uh, we do that collective as a whole. We stand on that um, as a church. And so that's the idea. God, God seeks to um, uh, reveal himself to the world through the church. So the idea then is when someone, if someone visits us, several things should take place. They should recognize the oneness that we share as we worship the Lord. Hopefully what they recognize is that a lot of us are really very different from each other. It's not a normal gathering of people. In other words, we all don't get together here because we love the Georgia Bulldogs. That's actually immaterial. Right? We all don't get here because we all love to go fishing. Some do, some don't care. Right? We don't have necessarily the common interests that the world views as being important that brings people together. And it really shouldn't be, even though sometimes it is in some places, where we share political views. Right? Because I've actually had people ask me this. I've actually had people ask me um, if a Democrat can be a Christian. Just so you know, they can. Right? There are definitely things that our government does that's wrong and sinful. Just because someone's a Democrat doesn't mean they necessarily support those things. Who knows? The point is, is that what unites us is Jesus Christ and the doctrine of the scripture. And if someone is wrong politically, then so be it. <laughs> All right, but the point is, is we should not be putting them down and making them feel ostracized because of whatever that is. Okay? Um, especially, in, and that's, you know, we, it's kind of, maybe we don't quite think about it the right way we should here in our country just because of how things are set up. But you will meet, if you meet international Christians, you will at times meet believers uh, who may think that socialism is actually the best way to govern a country because that's all they know. They come from a socialist country. You know, they may think the same way we think, meaning we think capitalism is good, especially if it's run by what? Christians. Because capitalism can be very greedy, right? But so, it's, so sin ruins it. They may believe that what's wrong with socialism is that they don't have enough Christians in the government. Well, I think socialism might work if you only had Christians, even though I may not like it. So the thing is, is that that's not what unites us, all right? What unites us, again, is Christ. And that's, that is what is to be central um, to our gathering together. The rest of verse 18, again, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So again, the last thing there tells us why these things are so is so that he will have the preeminence. He will be first in our minds, first in every aspect of life. So when it says he is the beginning, the Greek word there is, is arche, A-R-C-H-E. 
Um, again, it is in the present. Um, and the idea here is that he, it is the beginning in a double sense, meaning he's not only the first in the sense of time, uh, as for, you know, so in our alphabet, A is the first letter. He is first in that sense, and one is the first of our numbers. Um, so he is the first in that sense. But it means the first in the sense of the source from which something came. So Christ is the moving power which set something's in, set, has set something in operation. So the world is the creation of Christ, and the church is the new creation of Christ. Christ is the source of the church's life and being, and the director of her continued activity. So again, over and over again, Christ is preeminent in all of these things. He is first in every way. There is, in, there is no sense that he is secondary to anything. Um, and so that's what Paul is emphasizing. Again, remember also that for many of these individuals, especially for the Gentiles, because of their background uh, in pagan religions, uh, many pagan religions, especially back then, they believed in a very large number of gods. And there really wasn't necessarily like one that was over all of them. There were times when certain ones would be more powerful than other ones. And so you would try to, uh, like you might, you might hire a sorcerer to find a way to maybe bribe, like let's say if, you're, if you are a town, of, a city of people living in the mountains, and you're going to go invite the people, people that live on the, on the, close to the beach. So they worship the sea god, you worship the mountain god, so you hire a sorcerer, and the idea is, is can we somehow convince their god to join our side? Or can we, can we make sacrifices to their god so he'll like us, and then our god can, we can dominate them? That's why in most of those wars, uh, the belief was, is their gods brought them the victory. Um, and what most of them would do as far as their practices is whoever was left alive, they may enslave them, and they would still allow them to worship their gods, but they had to add their gods, and maybe their god had to be supreme. So that's why when you go, when you read the background to the city of Corinth, and the city of Rome, and the city of Colossae, and Ephesians, there's all the, Ephesus, there's all these temples of all these different gods, uh, but, it, but none of them were saying, we are the only way. Not like how it is in our country, which we should be doing. We believe we are the only way, and the Muslims believe they are the only way. You know, truth is exclusive in that sense. Uh, but the way that the pagans approach religion is they were all right. They all have their place. And there are major gods and minor gods, but, you know, that's how they approach things. Yes, sir. Oh, you had a question? Paganism was Jesus oh, okay. We're good. All right. Um, when it says that Christ is the firstborn from the dead, so Christ is preeminent in resurrection. So the resurrection... Of, uh, he is, the resurrection of the one on which all other resurrections from the dead are founded. Right, so uh, I'll explain this a little bit. But the idea, So we understand, we believe that we will be raised from the dead. It is not necessarily because we know in the Bible other people have been raised from the dead because our resurrection is not based on that. Our resurrection is based on the resurrection of Christ. A large part of that is because of the uniqueness of the resurrection of Christ. When Christ was resurrected from the dead, he, was, he had a new body. Okay, he, didn't, he didn't live for a while again as a human being and then died. You know, Lazarus was raised from the dead. He died later. Okay, he's still not walking around Israel. He, he died. Um, other people who were raised, you know, this, uh, the mother who was weeping over her son that died in the city of Nain, the Lord raised her son to life. He died again later. We don't know when, and we don't know of what. It doesn't matter. 
but all those individuals that are, that are raised from the dead in the Bible did eventually die, except for one, Christ. And so that's why his resurrection is the unique one. That's why his resurrection is to be preeminent. That's the resurrection that we focus on um, when, it, when it comes to our belief in our resurrection. We do understand that God has the power to raise the dead, and we see examples in the Bible, and that encourages us, but we don't ever say, well, I know I'll be raised from the dead because Lazarus was. We don't, we don't say that. Uh, what we say is, is I know that I'll be raised from the dead because Christ. Christ was the first fruits, meaning he was the first resurrection of many more like his to come. And that's, that's what we're going to have. So again, if Christ had not been resurrected, there would be no other resurrection of believers. He was not, again, the first person to ever be resurrected, as I, as I mentioned. But again... Uh, their resurrection was different. He was the first to rise from the dead to never die again. He was the first to rise with a glorified body. He rose from the dead as the head of a new creation. Yes? Do you have to, um, as a new believer, do you have to believe that Christ rose from the dead in a glorified body or just in a body? Or? That's not, most people who are becoming believers, that's not even an issue. Yeah. It's just, do you just believe Jesus raised from the dead? That's yeah. it. Okay. So yeah. not so much his body or... No, the, that's... No. Okay. That's not, a, that's not a thing. Gotcha. I don't think, yeah. I think normally, though, like it is, I, it would be this way with most doctrines, because anytime someone comes to Christ, there's many, many things they don't know. However, as you learn them, you believe them. Because what happens is, is, you know, I believe what Christ says. I believe in the Bible. And so, as I read them, well, of course that's true. I just didn't know that before. Um, and... Uh, of course, we want to make sure we understand the Bible correctly, but still. Uh, let me read this to you from Ray Steadman, because he makes a distinction that I think is important. He gets into the idea of what, what he calls resuscitation and resurrection. So I do not think, he'll end up saying that, that like Lazarus, he was resuscitated, he wasn't resurrected. That may be the best way technically to say it, but it's not wrong to say that Lazarus was resurrected, just so you know that. Because some people kind of get into that. Oh, you can't say he was resurrected. He was only resuscitated. That's not what's going on. But anyway, but he does say things that I think are helpful to make us think. So Ray Sedman, he was a pastor, uh, I think it was in Atlanta. I know his son's up in Atlanta, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where he is. He's retired now, but he says this. About the phrase, the firstborn from the dead. Many take that to mean that he is the first one ever to be resurrected. Well, that's true. The resurrection of Jesus is the only resurrection that has ever occurred on this earth. Lazarus and all the others who came back from the dead were, were really simply resuscitated. They came back to the same life they had left. We may even feel a bit sorry for them because they had to come back to take it up again. But Jesus was truly resurrected. He was given a glorified life. He came from the grave at a far higher level than when he went in. He returned in a glorified body subject to different laws and governed by different principles. Here then, it also means the owner, possessor of the new creation. He is the one who alone possesses the resurrection life that he gives to each of us. That is what John is saying in his first letter. 1 John 5.11 says, This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, a deathless life, a resurrection life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. One of the questions I ask people when I, if I'm sharing the gospel with them, I usually toward the end, uh, we, we go to John 5, 11, 
through 13, uh, and I talk to them, and one of the things that's important is the word has. And I will ask the individual, what does the word has mean? And don't use the word has or have. Of course, normally they're like, because they want to say it means you have something. So I've already told them you can't use that word. Uh, but the idea is really you want to get to the fact that, they, that you possess something. And what is the, well, the reason why I do that, and I did it because my dad taught me that, uh, but it's to re-emphasize um, to the individual that you actually possess Christ. Right? Not like you own your car, but you possess him. He's a part of who you are. And because you possess Christ, then you possess everything that is about Christ. And that is, I have life. Remember, he is the resurrection life because he exists. In the same way that we understand the world is held together because Christ exists. That's the kind of power that he has. It's almost what you see sometimes, again, in science fiction movies. The idea that someone is so powerful... They don't even have to think about certain things being done, and they're being done because they just exist. So that's how Christ is. Remember, Christ is not thinking, okay, I've got to make sure gravity keeps working, and I've got to make sure the second law of thermodynamics keeps He's not doing that. He's not thinking about those things. Those things all function the way they're supposed to because he exists. Right? That's the kind of power that God possesses. So he is the resurrected life. So even though in one sense... We believe that we will be raised from the dead, and, we, and if, let's say we knew the date when Christ is returning. We don't. But if we knew that, we could say, on this particular date in this year, I know that I'll be raised from the dead. Well, we don't have that. But we know we'll be raised from the dead because we already possess Christ. He is life. He's the power of that. So because he exists, I'm gonna raise, I'll be raised from the dead. doesn't matter when that's going to happen in that sense. Because he exists... Nothing can stop that. There's nothing more powerful than Christ. Right? He is omnipotent in every way. So there's, we already possess, so we actually already possess that life. I possess the resurrection life, uh, which hopefully will help us to maybe even think again in a new way about the idea that we are new creatures in Christ. We, we possess this resurrection life. Uh, and then when this body changes, when we're given a new body, uh, we will no longer be subject to the laws of this planet in the same way this body is. Now, we have to be careful with that as far as how we speculate what we may be able to do in our bodies. Because some will say, well, look at Christ. So whatever Christ did after his resurrection, we can do. Well, not necessarily. Like, for example, we know that he was able to pass through walls. We might be able to do that, but I don't know. I don't know if he was able to do that because that's just the nature of a resurrection body, or was he able to do that because he's Christ? Right, that's not clear. Um, we know that he was, it seems like he was able to instantly be one place and then be another. Really cool thing. All right? That'd be really cool if we can do that. But I don't know if we will. But remember this. No matter what we have with our resurrected life and resurrected body, you won't be disappointed. Okay? Just remember that. You will not be disappointed. You won't be saying, you know, this whole living forever would be a whole lot better if I could do such and such. No one will think that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just so you know, uh, it's really important to, to grasp. So it's not, there's nothing detrimental or diminished about this resurrection life we're going to have with Christ. So again, uh, uh, another pastor says this, one may be moral, he may be a nice person, but they do not yet possess the life of eternity, the resurrection life of Jesus, because that life comes from Jesus alone. It is a clear biblical fact that Christians who have received Christ 
and been born into the new creation have this life. This is the reason they could no longer excuse themselves for wrong behavior by saying, well, after all, I'm only human. So that's disappointing because now once again another excuse for our sin has been taken away. Um, and as human beings, we want to have excuses because it's natural to blame others. Uh, but the Bible doesn't let us do that. So this guy goes on and says, It's true you are human, and yet in the body, in the flesh, and that is why you are tempted. But because you also have a new life, it means you do not need to yield to that temptation. There is now a new power within. So that's... Uh, one of the, the main message of Romans 6, I believe, is as a believer, whenever you sin, you sin on purpose. I know, that's a real drag. Uh, there's just, you look around for someone to blame, and there's no one there. All right, there's just a mirror. <laughs> All right, but we, and even though the flesh is weak, right, we, we don't have to sin. Uh, and, of course, that's why we understand as we grow as Christians, we should sin less, even though we'll never become sinless. Right, so we should sin less. Um, now, if you recognize that you are sinning less, don't brag about it, because that's sin. <laughs> but you can be thankful, you know, if you think about it, that that's not arrogant. Okay? Well, it's not bragging if we are grateful that we are changing and being changed. If you recognize you don't respond to certain situations the way you used to, you can be grateful for that. Right? Some of us, if we still responded the way we used to respond to things 20 years ago, we may not still be married. We, might be, we may be unmarried now because we were really a jerk. And, you know, somebody might be able to put up with your jerkiness for a while, but not for 20 years. Um, so we can be grateful for that. So, if, and some, some individuals have come over, we might say, life-altering kinds of sins. If they are now, if they've overcome them, they can be, they are to be, we should be grateful. So that's not bragging because who gets the credit? God gets the credit. None of us are saying, well, I used to be an alcoholic, but you know what? I straightened up one day because I just realized what a waste of time that was, and so I decided to stop drinking. I have not really met a lot of people who actually say that and mean that. Um, the idea for the believer is, yeah, I knew I needed to give up drinking, and the Lord has helped me, but the Lord has taken that away. The Lord took away the desire, whatever it happens to be. Um, and so uh, don't be afraid to recognize the good, and maybe even great things that God is doing in your life. Just remember that it's always about Him, and then be careful that you don't brag about God in a way that puts the spotlight on you. <laughs> you know, because we're clever. You know, we can do that. You know, like, yeah, God's really done a work in my life because, you know, I'm committed and I'm surrendered. <laughs> you know, I just, don't go there. I right? really make sure that it's about Him. And the idea is, is that we know that God can and will change other people because we've experienced it ourselves and we, as well as we've seen it in other individuals. And so, that, so that's a very good thing. Uh, and so Paul is, is speaking about that. Uh, the, again, this, this idea of this resurrection and having that resurrection within us, that life that's within us, it's, it's a wonderful thing. So again, when we become a Christian, we have a new source of power that the world knows nothing about. Um, we are expected as believers to live differently. We are expected to live, if you want to say it this way, at a higher level. And we can. Again, we cannot excuse ourselves by saying I'm just a human being or I'm only human. Uh, we have to throw that away. Uh, God has given us the ability to say no to things. Um, and 
I think the longer we walk as Christians, it does get easier to say no, not because our will becomes stronger, but because our heart changes. When our heart changes, our desires change. Now, our will may grow stronger in a good sense because of the, what happens to our commitment to Christ, because of what God is doing in our heart, but primarily because the desires change, it becomes easier to say no to things. So it's not always necessarily, maybe rarely, is it, is it a thing of, of willpower that enables us to say no to temptation. It's because the desire has changed. And so it's, it's something I no longer want. And so it's not a big deal to say no to it. You had your hand up? Yes. Uh, that power within, isn't that, in a, is that because of, in Corinthians, if we have the Holy Spirit? Yes. Yeah, when we, talk, when we say that Christ dwells in us or the Holy Spirit dwells in us, same thing. Okay. You know, you can use that term interchangeably. They're both true, but yes. That is because the Spirit of God lives in us and empowers us. Um, again, it's not a magical power, obviously, uh, but it's a very real thing. And as we mature, as we learn to depend upon Christ more, uh, the Spirit of God in us um, interacts with the Word of God as you read and study. And so then we, we become more dependent, we become more obedient, uh, our convictions become stronger, uh, our heart changes, our desires change, and so as a result of all those things happening, we become different in the way we behave, in the way that we respond to things. I think the best indication, this is my personal opinion, but the best indication of our growth as Christians is not necessarily by how much good that we do. I think a great indication of our growth in Christ is how we respond to things in unexpected situations. Because that's when the real you comes out, right? You know, like the individual who says, oh yeah, I don't swear anymore, and then they hit their thumb with a hammer. Which really does happen, and people really do use bad words when that happens. Alright? But the individual who maybe used to do that a lot, and they do whack their thumb, and they may grunt, and they may say something, but there's no longer, that's no longer coming out. Right? It's not necessarily because, oh, they now have better self-control. That may be part of it. Because that's just not in them anymore. Remember, Jesus told us that what we do always comes from where? Our heart. And sometimes that's where we, sometimes we become a little, I don't want to say the word surprised. We can become despondent, disappointed in ourselves because we sometimes may think too highly of ourselves. But when you remember that you only can do what's in your heart. No one can make you do anything against your character. They can't. It's an impossibility. You only do what's in here. That's, just, that's, that's so adverse to what we hear in our society. Um, and we need to recognize that's how, you know, our hearts are, man, they're dark. And God has done this tremendous thing in our lives, uh, which is marvelous. Um, but sometimes that bubble we have of, our, of the image of what we think we are needs to be shattered so once again we're humble before the Lord and realize really how not only how dependent we are upon him but really how powerful sin really is and how pervasive sin is in our life it's, it's not a small little thing you know that we just we, we become a Christian I overcome sin and my life is wonderful we are you know the again the Bible speaks of the life we're living in terms of warfare and battle uh, and this struggle that we have. It doesn't mean that you're sweating all the time. Uh, remember, you, being in battle doesn't mean that you're unhappy and scowling all the time. There's a lot of great joy 
in their Christian life. But it is also that. And uh, we want to make sure that we don't, we just don't want to let our guards down. Because when we do, um, we underestimate the power of sin and we overestimate our strength. Um, and I don't know about you, but there's just a lot of things I just don't want to find out about myself. I never want to find out if I'm weak in an area. Let's just go ahead and take all precautions. I'm happy with that. And I'll live with those precautions for the rest of my life. I'm good with that. Because I don't want to depend upon this idea that I, am, I have whatever kind of strength I may think I have. If the Lord puts me in a situation where I'm tested in a certain way, all I know is this. Being in that position, God has said, number one, no matter what comes my way, it's not unique. It's happened to everybody else before. Number two, God always provides a way of escape. Always. And so that's what I need to remember. Yes, sir. Well, it's human nature. It's, it's a sin. We, that's what we do. We rebel against God. And so we, are go- we sometimes want to blame God for things. Why do we want to blame others? Well, that's our, that's our nature, to blame someone else, whether it's God or another human being. It goes back to Adam and Eve. Remember what he did. When God confronted Adam, he said, the woman you gave me. So he was indicting both God and the woman. And then, of course, God turned to her, and what did she say? Well, it was, it was the serpent. Now, technically, the serpent did do those things. That's not why she sinned. She, she, she made the decision. She made that choice. She knew that it was wrong. And so you notice that when, when each time Adam and Eve gave their excuses, you notice that God doesn't respond to it. doesn't even answer. He didn't say to Adam. He didn't even tell Adam he got it wrong. He just asked Adam. Adam answers. He asks Eve. She answers. And then what does God do? He curses Adam, curses Eve, curses the serpent. This holds me responsible. Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so they did. They had. They, they right. They're like us in effect now as Christians. Mm-hmm. When so when so we should never say, "I just don't see how Adam and Eve could sin," because that's what we do, right? And <laughs> you just don't want to go there. We also have That's the point. Yep, we do. Yeah, I'm in favor of having fewer choices. I don't want to be a robot, but I'm in favor of having fewer choices. <laughs> sure. Christ came back to his same body, right? Well, there were, there was, there was, he looked, we know he looked at pretty much the same. And he still had the wounds. He's the only one we know that I have the wounds. Yes. Yeah, the body, so the body's transformed. So the body's no longer under the same laws. Is it improved? Is it something Yeah, I think not. My personal belief on that is he needed to go to the tabernacle in heaven and sprinkle his blood. And when he told him not to touch him, the Greek word there is actually not to touch, but not to cling. And so I think the idea there was, you know, she was going to grab on him and hold him. And basically it's like, don't cling to me, let go. I've got some stuff to do. It wasn't like, don't, don't touch me yet. I do believe that the transformation was instantaneous. Um, but anyway, but it was an by yeah, yeah. I, but I, the reason why I would, I would, I, I hesitate so with when we're resurrected, we'd be resurrected in this body. 
But it, it'll be improved, yeah. But I would always want to emphasize the word glorify because improve may not be strong enough. But you know what I mean. Yeah. So we. So that's. So I think the thing is just remember is we. A. We will be recognizable. And I believe that because remember when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of what was the story of the Mount Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John were there, and Moses and Elijah show up. Peter and James and John, first of all, had never met them before. When they see them, they instantly recognize them. Now, it wasn't because they had pictures of them, because there weren't pictures. But, they, but here's the thing. They did identify them as Moses and Elijah. So they were still the same people they were before. I think that's important. Jesus appeared the same. Now, we know that Mary, when, when Jesus appears uh, you know, right after the resurrection, she's not quite recognizing him until he speaks. So there's maybe enough of a difference. And of course, we don't know how much she was overwhelmed by grief. You know, you can get to all that kind of stuff. So we don't know how much of, of that was because his appearance was, in a sense, different. But the moment he said her, her, her name, she knew who it was. Kind of like how you might, you might see a classmate you haven't seen in 20 years. And then when they say your name, you like, boom, just boom, the flash, and you recognize them. So I do believe we'll recognize each other, absolutely. How much different would the body look? There's nothing in the Bible that says, except when Jesus appeared, he, he, he clearly, hands, feet, head, face. He said, he said, I'm not a ghost, so it's not a ghost. And he said, do I, and he ate food. That's very important because ghosts don't eat. Um, in that sense, he ate food and, you know, there was all that kind of stuff. Um, so there's several things we can pick up about the glorified body. But we just have to be careful. We can't, we can't be dogmatic. We can say, well, I believe... We'll be able to do this, but I can't say yes. We will be able to do this or that. Yes. Yeah, but remember they were both in hell. They were, Lazarus didn't have a resurrected body. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Huh? No. Well, you have to remember now. Hades and hell are different. Hades is a compartment in hell, so he was in hell. But hell is not. When we say hell. Nowadays, we actually mean Hades. And you can use them interchangeably because paradise is no longer there. But at one time there was. Because hell was divided into three compartments. And so, which is called Abraham's bosom. So that's where Lazarus was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Yes, ma'am. I have two questions. Okay, this is coming away from me. Oh, so Jesus did, yeah. It's because of what they that's because of what they represent. He'll always have those. Okay. Yeah. And the other thing is Okay, so do you believe that and I think you already answered this, but this little brother needs to ask this, but do you believe that Adam was more responsible because he was not present there with Eve? No, he was there. No, he was there. Oh, he was right there. Yeah, he was. Yeah, I believe he was. Yeah, up, yeah, he was there. Yeah, he just didn't say anything. He really messed up. Yeah, he was little wussy man right there. Yeah, he should have said something. I said he was little wussy man right there. He should have said something and he didn't. Huh? Yeah. It says she turned to the man who was with her and gave it to him and he ate. So uh, to me, I just take that literally true. Why not? Exactly, right. But he didn't do it. MJ. This is all 
Say that one more time. Some people used to have really freaky ideas, like, or they would worry about weird things, like if somebody was mangled in a car wreck, like what would they look like in heaven? So I said, and if we just, if usually we just kind of pause for just a moment and think about it. That's not really a big deal. I, I've even had discussions with people who were worried about cremation. And so, I, you know, like, so if we're cremated, you know, like what happens to the resurrection? I go, you do know there's people who die in fires and they, they're, and there's people who are, are, they die in a war and the bodies are burned. That, that's not, remember, God made us from dust. So there's, no, there's not a limit there. You know, God doesn't go, oh, well, I raised everybody except for those who were burnt. I mean, he doesn't do that. Right? If you just, so if we think about it, you know, we realize, okay, that, you know, I guess that doesn't really make sense. Uh, now, now, if you talk to somebody and they ask you that, don't make fun of them. Just, but you can still, you want to walk them through that. And you can say, well, I mean, I tell people, so we'll just think about it. <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I don't mock them, right? Because it may be that, you know how it is when you ask certain questions, you just, you just haven't thought about certain things, and you should. And then when someone says something, you go, you feel like an idiot because it's, like, it's so obvious. Why didn't I think of that? Well, we don't. So, you know, and you can laugh about it later. <laughs> I say, remember the time when I asked? Well, anyway. Uh, okay. Um, so, again, the phrase um, that in everything he might be preeminent, uh, one of an old, old preacher uh, from the 1700s said this, Christ's resurrection is unique and is a pledge that all who trust in him will also rise. It proclaims him as supreme in the spiritual creation. Christ cannot be second anywhere. He is firstborn of every creature because he has created everything. He is also firstborn from the dead in connection with a redeemed and heavenly family. Thus creation and redemption hand the honors of supremacy to him because of who he is and of what he has done. Again, the phrase that in all things he might have the preeminence simply means he is first everywhere. The Lord Jesus has thus a double preeminence, first in creation and then in the church. God has decreed that in all things he may have the preeminence. So, as you can tell, again, all this, all, we, all we've done, even through all the quotes, we're just re-emphasizing really what Paul is saying and understanding why that Paul is pounding this point in uh, the minds of these individuals. Um, many different reasons why, partly because of not only the false teachers that were present. Remember, the Bible is, is a truth that's been, re, that's been preserved for us for all time. The preeminence of Christ was going to be attacked shortly after uh, the ascension. In the early church, they dealt for hundreds of years with various attacks on who is Christ and what is Christ. And it took a long time to hammer that out, you know, for them to figure it out and get it right. Um, and as I mentioned before, many times things that we learn when, when we're very young are, are actually these incredible spiritual truths that caused men and women to argue and dissect the Bible for decades trying to figure it out and get it right. And we, we're taught it when we're four years old. Um, that doesn't, doesn't diminish it in any way. Uh, we should be grateful for that. But again, because the Word of God is preserved for all time, God, knowing everything, 
understands what's, what kind of attacks are going to come on the Bible. And all those are answered in the scripture. It really is amazing. Um, the more I read various different kinds of books on apologetics, uh, there'll be times when, um, especially if I, I try to get a hold of some at times that are written by people from other countries, because their look at it is very different. What they view as being important apologetic in the Bible is very different than maybe a Western mind. And you can just see how the Bible is written in such a way that there are aspects of it that will address people in other cultures where certain things are super important that would, we would never even think of. Um, and it's really phenomenal to see that, um, that it is a, a book that transcends time and it transcends culture. Uh, that's why one of the things that we should always try to do, all Christians have to do this, but I'm putting it in the context of us living in this century, in this country, is that when we study the Bible and, and it comes to trying to interpret what is being said, we're, we're always trying to be objective. We want to get rid of the idea that I'm an American in the 21st century trying to understand this. What was meant then? What was being addressed and being said then? And then once I understand it in its context, I'm able to, help to, I'm able to apply it to my life. I don't, want to, I don't want to interpret it in light of America. I, I'll give you some very simple things people have done that's kind of dumb. Uh, there's been a lot of real bad things done in the name of prophecy, but an example would be someone's reading some prophetic passage in the Old Testament, and it uses an eagle, and the individual says, that's clearly America, because our national bird is an eagle, and there's an eagle. Now, just so you know, people have done that, and they're serious about that. We're not the only country that uses an eagle, by the way. There's different, I, I don't have one memorized. There's different places in the Old Testament. It could be Isaiah, Ezekiel. I mean, okay. remember 85% of our prophecies in the Old Testament. Right. Okay. Uh, so there's a lot there. But, that, but then that's the, kind of things, that's the kind of things people would do. Um, and uh, so we just want to make sure that we always strive to do that. And it can be hard. You know, it can be very difficult um, until it becomes kind of a habit uh, to do that. Yes? Just say, yeah, it is. And then ask him, what's his point? Well, he thinks that they I know, but you want to make him say that. Hey, I got you. Yeah. And then you say, well, uh, and then ask him to find who God is. Because yeah. here's the thing. So if, if, if this is God's word, and he's using men to write it, does God have the ability to make sure that there's no mistakes or not? That's why I said, I mean. Yeah. So you ask him that. He I, has to answer that question. Yeah. Sure. Right. Yeah. And then just asking to show you where the errors are. That's yeah. the next step. Well, he doesn't necessarily come right out and say it, but he just kind of. That's okay. Make him say it gotcha. by your questions. That's always a good thing. Yes, MJ. Well, it's not subject to error because uh, it was produced by the Holy Spirit of God. Yeah, so that's what you have to show him and explain to him. Now, if he's a non-believer, if he's a non-believer, they're not going to get that. So you don't want to necessarily dwell too long on that. But that's what people are... The re, and there's the, remember, the main reason why people will say things like that is because if I can convince myself that there's error somewhere in the Bible, 
I don't have to listen to any of it. That's, what, that's how it goes. That's what that is. So just remember that that's really what's going on. That's why we pray for them and we want to try and get back to the gospel because the main, the main issue with them really isn't that. The main issue is who Christ is, what Christ has done, where are they in relation to God, you know, that kind of thing. Yes? What's interesting is they, they, they want to like it. The gentleman I'm talking about, professing to be a Christian, he wants to lead the parts that about salvation are true, but not about the other parts. That's so convenient. You can't trust all of it unless yeah. you can't trust any of it, really. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I would agree. And remember, that's like an accounting program where you can only trust someone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, remember, that's, that's always been the stance of Christianity as a whole, is if there is error in the Bible, then the whole thing is worthless. Because mm-hmm. even though it's 66 books, it's still one. Um, and we do that on purpose. And that's why the world's been trying so hard. So that's why when, when someone makes a statement, especially if they claim to be a believer, uh, we have to let them know that that is a very important serious, powerful statement, and they just cannot say that willy-nilly, because if they're wrong, they are blaspheming God and calling him a liar. You know, you, they, you, 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 huh? You're saying the statement written by men? What they're saying. Yeah, what they're saying, if, if there's error in the Bible, because written by men, that, what they're saying is very serious, very important, and is blasphemous, period. And therefore, you, can, you should not ever just flippantly say that. And they are required to show or prove where that error is. They just, they, and they can't, it's intellectually dishonest if their approach is, well, I don't know exactly where it is, I just know it's there. That's just lame uh, when people say that. They'd be like, it would almost be like this, saying uh, to that individual, well, you're an adulterer. I mean, I don't know exactly how I can prove that, but I know you are one. You're just trying to show him that just being saying something flippantly without evidence is dangerous. So it's, so it's even more so with that. So that's the idea, is to, make, is to force him to re- recognize that if it's dangerous for you to say that about them because they're married, then how much more dangerous is it to say that about the Word of God? And just kind of move in that direction. That may not work. They, may, they still, because a lot, of, a lot of times people just don't want to deal with that because they have, again, their reasons why, which is normally has to do with, even if, there's, even if there's no specific sin in their life they're trying to hold on to, it's the general idea of trying to do that. Well, then he's not a Christian. Yeah, well, that's what I... Well, you just said, you told me he said he was a Christian. Well, it, it, he, so you have to let him know. He says he's a Well, you just tell him that he's not. <laughs> I mean, if, you, if you've had several discussions, then you yeah. have, you can, I mean, obviously, if you meet someone for the first time, you wouldn't no, say that. Really yeah, so you know, for a while, you can just be a little bit more forthright to say, yeah, you're not a Christian, just so you know that. And just well, tell them. And then just go to the Bible and say, because the Bible says, this is what a Christian is. And this is what God is, and you're, you're saying that God isn't that. conversation. Not really. Just, you know, just think about it and then just tell them. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, MJ. It is. Yep, he did say that. Uh, it, okay, the premise is wrong. Okay, the premise is that if you commit, because it's the Catholic teaching, that if you commit suicide, the reason why you cannot be forgiven is you didn't have time to ask for forgiveness. So let's take that logic. So sometimes when you want to show something is flawed, you want to take that to its logical conclusion. So the, so the logic of the argument is 
you haven't had time to confess your sin. That's why you're not forgiven. Suicide is not the only thing that applies to. So let's say that I get into an argument with John Earl. Let's say that I hit John Earl. Would that be a sin? Yes. So I hit John Earl, and then I go to leave, and I get hit by a bus, and I die instantly. I did not have time to confess my sin. So according to that logic, that is an unforgivable sin because I didn't confess it, and I go to hell. So then we take it one step further. So having this same argument with John Earl, I don't hit him, but I'm thinking how great it would be to hit him. That would still be a sinful thought, would it not? I turn around after the argument, after thinking gleefully how great it would be to hit him, but I don't. And now I'm proud of myself for not doing that, so now I've sinned twice. And I get hit by a bus, I die immediately. So now the unpardonable sin has become a sin that's just a thought. See what ha- so you see what's going on? So, so their definition, the premise of the definition is flawed because it doesn't work. Because now you have to start expanding what's un- unforgivable. All right, so... That's important to make sure you establish with them. So, so, so it cannot be suicide. So even though it is a sin, if a, if a believer commits suicide, if it's a believer who does that, and if we say that's unforgivable, now we have another problem. Because we teach that Jesus died for all sin. So where does it say he died for all sin except for suicide? It's not in there. So you see, now there's a theological problem. So you want to point that out to them, that either Jesus died for all sin or he didn't. And... You would think that if suicide was that, that would be at least somewhere hinted at somewhere. That would be kind of, you know, it's major, be important. So you want to show them that. Um, And then you want to get back into what is the unpardonable sin. And it is important that the only one that mentioned it is Jesus. And the only time he mentions it is when he's accused of being demon-possessed to cast out a demon. And the only time that that sin is brought up is when it's done in his presence. And my personal belief, it's not an individual sin. I believe it's a national sin. Because at the moment that that took place, Israel was rejecting the Messiahship of Jesus based on the fact that he was demon-possessed. And after that miracle and after that incident, if you divide the life of Jesus up just by his miracles in two, in two ways, before that incident, Jesus healed everyone that came to him. After that, he only healed those who had faith. Everything changed from that moment on. Um, and, uh, and there's some more to that, but I won't get into all that. But basically, um, you cannot commit the unpardonable sin today. There, there's no such thing. Well, I've, I've so. heard that you, you, from prominent pastors on TV, on TV, I guess I shouldn't say that, but, uh, that the unpardonable sin is rejecting Christ, which I guess... That it, it, it cannot be the case, yeah. because here's the question. Not, before, not forever, I mean, before you become a Christian... Did you reject Christ? I think he means like yeah. everybody. Never, never but saved. see, they don't say that. Yeah. And that would be different. Yeah. So they're wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because all of us are forgiven for unbelief and the rejection of Christ when we become believers. Yeah. All of us are. So to say that that is, because people will say, well, that's the sin that sends you to hell. No, you go to hell for all of your sin. Right? Because how many sins are you punished for? All of them. You're not just punished for rejecting Christ. True. You're punished for all your sins, which includes that. So, well, yeah, I know that. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. But we're dealing specifically with those who say this whole idea that the unpardonable sin is the rejection of Christ. It, it cannot be that. A, the Bible doesn't say that. Uh, and then we just think about it logically and theologically. That doesn't match up. Okay, time's up. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so we will pray. 
uh, and we will uh, we will continue uh, we'll continue next week. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your grace and kindness and love. We just thank you, Lord, again for your word and for the really incredible things that Paul is instructing us concerning your son Christ. We pray, Lord, that it would continue to have a very deep and profound effect on us and our view of you and really on our ability and desire to worship Christ and to purely praise, uh, to give him the praise and the glory that he so rightly deserves. Father, we ask now that as we are dismissed, you'll keep us safe and uh, ask that you would allow us to come back together on Sunday, that we may gather as believers and worship you and that we may be encouraged and strengthened. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.